0: Be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. No subject is terrible if the story is true, if the prose is clean and honest, and if it affirms courage and grace under pressure.
1: Welcome to Narrative Analysis with Nate. Here's your host, Nate Privett.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Narrative Analysis with Nate. This is a new show which attempts to marry the classical forms of literary interpretation with modern media. And for our very first episode, I wanted to take two things that are very popular, both in the classical and in the modern world. And so we are looking at Marvel, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and comparing it to the Iliad. We're looking at the heroes of that time and our time and how they match up and how they're different. And joining me today in an attempt to explain the ancient world a little bit better than I could is Dr. Fincher. Hello. And specifically, I want to say, for anyone that has not seen these movies, we're going to be talking about Infinity War and Endgame, Black Panther, Captain Marvel, for specific examples but we'll be jumping all over the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And of course, for anyone interested, we will be spoiling some of the Iliad. (laughs) And so something that I wanted to talk about, something that's kind of eye-catching, the similarities between the two is the battle sequences, what the action in the Iliad and in Marvel movies actually looks like. Because we are looking at how both highlight the heroes. In the world of the Iliad, there's a concept called the Aristeia, and uh, Dr. Venture, could you tell me a bit about what exactly Aristea is?
1: So an Aristeia is a point in epic poetry where the gods grant a hero a specific sort of aura, additional powers, and they basically go out and kill a lot of people, important people, even hurt gods.
0: And there's a couple different ways that Aristea is displayed that I think are very parallel to Marvel action sequences. Because Marvel, while it's not divinely granted, has these moments in battle where it's highlighting one specific hero. The best example that I can think of is Thor in Infinity War. After he gets his new axe and is all lightninged up, goes to Wakanda and mows down hordes of monsters and challenges Thanos' goon squad. And it's important that the Aristea of the Iliad also involves killing a bunch of Nameless enemies, and also killing a few very powerful named enemies. Is that fair to say?
1: Exactly. In Book Five and Six of the Iliad, Diomedes mows down a variety of lesser heroes, but also uh, wounds the goddess Aphrodite, damages Aeneas, even intimidates Ares and Apollo.
0: One thing that will begin a theme that we see in the differences here is how Marvel handles facing those big named characters. That is, the Iliad is not afraid to kill off a bunch of big names, whereas the Marvel heroes oftentimes go about being less bloodthirsty. They're not as interested in ending the lives so much as neutralizing the threat, which oftentimes means not killing the enemy, which is something that the Iliad really doesn't even consider, right? It doesn't. If you are going to end someone, you are going to kill them and uh, take their honor, which is the next thing that I want to talk about, Marvel and the Iliad's pursuit of honor. And the Greek word for that is timei. And uh, Dr. Fincher, could you go into a little bit more detail on what Timae looks like?
1: Timae comes from a root that means to apportion things. And so literally as an apportionment, it has an expanded meaning within the Homeric universe where Timae is honor, but also physical goods. So any sign or any apportionment you might get for doing a specific thing, that's Timae. But also... Timei is your reputation that you yourself have from your actions.
0: I think that Timei does apply to the Marvel world as well. The characters are still seeking honor and seeking rewards or apportionment from combat, but it plays out differently. The Marvel world cares a lot more about almost ideological honor, where that honor comes from one's own merit. Whereas, and this is another one of those significant differences, the Iliad is focused a lot on hero in the sense of genealogy, whereas in the Marvel world, a lot more individual-focused. And that has a lot to do with the ideology of it. And Dr. Fincher, you explained to me previously the ideological hero, which I think is one of the biggest contrasts from the Iliad to the Marvel world. Could you explain what exactly the ideological hero is and what the Greek world thought of it. The
1: ideological hero would be a hero with an overriding ideology where their actions are governed towards perpetuating or spreading that ideology. It differs from the more traditional Homeric hero, which is a hero as an actual being. So this is a child of the gods and human beings they're a hero not because they do anything, but simply because those are their parents. The ideological hero on the other hand is a more democratic concept because it's based on allegiance or exemplification of an ideology rather than birth or parentage.
0: So to look at the two different kinds of heroes from the perspective of time, there is a sort of status honor that Greek heroes get, a status time, whereas Marvel heroes uh, seek a more ideological teammate, a teammate based off of their skill and moral code, which is why you see death being a lot less prevalent for heroes to seek first. Certainly, the villains die in Marvel movies, but it's almost a last resort, or the villains do it to themselves. The hero doesn't even do the killing, and the villain ends up dying of their own accord and their own ambitions and audacity. That's a very different perspective on honor. To talk about a specific instance of where the Marvel world kind of bleeds into status, team, a, I want to talk about Captain Marvel. Because Captain Marvel was a very controversial character, for a lot of Marvel fans. The character came about at the very end of this first sequence of movies, this first almost decade or longer, and only had two movies, but yet was considered to be one of the strongest characters. Whereas you have in Infinity War, I think, a scene where Captain Marvel just shows up to a meeting, walks up to Thor, a character who has had plenty of time to show his moral and martial prowess, And this character, with a lot of background, kind of just sizes up Captain Marvel and says, I like this one. She's worthy of my honor. And he gives his teammate to her. Whereas we, the audience, don't have more than one and a half movies really to feel that she has earned it of her own accord. And then later on in the final climactic battle of Endgame, there is this scene where Captain Marvel comes in. And Thanos, again, who has had a decade of movies to build him up as this coordinated, calm, calculating villain, sees her and has a panic attack. We, as the audience, feel that she hasn't earned it because we are looking at a skill-based teammate, whereas she is being given a status teammate where her honor is based off of the other characters giving that to her without her having done anything to earn it. You could call that
1: a sort of perceptive honor.
0: She's almost given this pseudo-divine worth where she shows up at the end having been defending the galaxy elsewhere, and she just kind of shows up deus ex machina. That's an example of status time, and how in the modern world, we're much more negative of that status time, which I think is based off of our focus of the ideological hero, would you th- say that's fair, Finch? I'd
1: say so. I mean, teammate in the Iliad is a transactional situation. Yeah, um, there is a tension between status and uh, um, skills-based teammate. That's the basis of the Iliad. Uh, Achilles refuses to uh, recognize Agamemnon's status teammate. Agamemnon refuses to recognize Achilles' status teammate, and teammate gets acquired. Um, you know, through many different avenues. You can be a good counselor. You can fight really well. You can be extremely clever like Odysseus. You could be very old like Nestor. But status team is based on the birth from the gods, holding a specific position like Agamemnon as the king of the expedition. And the reason they do kill these other heroes in battle is because when you... uh, enter into any battle situation, there is a crisis of t You can either lose t or gain t It depends on who's killed. So when Achilles kills somebody, he gets their t um, Ideological heroes, on the other hand, their t doesn't arise from a status. Um, We could consider it skills-based, but it's more about how they adhere to an ideology and how successful they are at spreading that ideology. And So later on, we find heroes who are spreading Pythagorean philosophy or spreading um, mm, wine around the world as in the god Dionysus. And that's absolutely something that is much more important in the United States, something that... I think, derives from Christianity, ultimately, saints, in a sense, are just ideological heroes. Living an ideology, <laughs> spreading it around, and admired. they gain power, they gain teammate because they embody the ideals.
0: I think that's a, a very interesting way to put it. I think that's a very apt way to put it. And right after the break, I'll be providing an example of the ideological hero in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Narrative Analysis with Nate, right here on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. Take it away, Nate. I think the pivotal example we can see of ideological teammate is in uh, Black Panther... When you have T'Challa, the Black Panther, in the fight against Killmonger when they are wrestling for the right to kingship. So, this is a ceremonial sequence in which basically anyone who disagrees with the kingship can challenge and engage in a fight to the death and then take the kingship. And this is a traditional, rightful process, if you will. And so, T'Challa is being crowned king and Killmonger, a very lovely name uh, Marvel has given to the villain of Black Panther, steps, steps ahead and declares, you know, trial by combat. And during that combat, one, one thing that I think is just interesting to point out is that T'Challa fights with a, a shield and a weapon, whereas Killmonger fights with two weapons, kind of just a natural dichotomy of the way that they are trying to go about combat and then representative of their characteristics. And during that combat, There are instances where T'Challa gets the upper hand, and there are obvious moments where T'Challa could end the life of Killmonger, but T'Challa, being the ideological hero, doesn't want to kill Killmonger in that heated moment. It is a moment of restraint by T'Challa, and that ultimately is his downfall, because after having not taken those opportunities, Killmonger does not hesitate nearly as much, and in fact, attempts to kill T'Challa in a very dramatic way of throwing him off of the waterfall that this fight takes place on. Now, of course, the movie goes on. He doesn't die. But the idea of the ideological hero there, we think of T'Challa there as being the more virtuous or honorable character there, where if you were to throw that situation to a Greek hero and have that read out, he would be seen as uh, foolish. And it would be uncharacteristic of a hero because and when you're fighting someone, you're fighting them to kill them or to take their teime. We had talked about one instance where Achilles is contemplating not killing someone. This is closer to the end of the Iliad and Achilles is in, he has his new armor and he is full of rage.
1: His Aristeia.
0: Yes. Um, and during that Aristeia, someone pleads for mercy, but under the argument that you could gain more teime, Achilles, if you saved me and then ransomed me. So in the one instance where saving someone's life is specifically called out and considered, it isn't for some virtue or, I guess, ideology. It is for the sake of more time, more goods, which is a very different philosophy to saving someone's life that you see in the Marvel world.
1: Yeah, Achilles has a problem there. He could... Get the money, which would bring him some teammate, or kill the guy. Both of these would create teammate. Yes. However, ransoming him is something that has the option of bringing greater teammate to him, particularly because Achilles has done it already once. Um, so, killing him there is not lessening his teammate, he's still getting it, but it's a mark of a abnormal situation, Uh, the calculation that every hero makes in every encounter, how am I going to maximize the amount of team I I'm going to acquire, somewhat breaks down and gives way to Achilles' emotionalism.
0: And speaking of emotionalism, emotions are something that the Marvel world prioritizes, and this ties into the next point of how the Marvel heroes want to be engaged with their emotions and use their emotions as motivation for their um, fighting. I mean, Iron Man sacrifices himself because of his love for everyone around him and because that is the culmination of his character arc from being a greedy, heartless, military-grade weapons salesman to a loving father figure to the younger heroes and someone who ultimately sacrifices himself, which Sacrificing yourself is something that the Greeks really don't consider virtuous under the Greek idea because of a new topic I want to talk about, kleos. What exactly is kleos?
1: So kleos comes from the root clue, and it's the totality of what is heard about you when you die. The idea is that the teammate that you acquire in your lifetime creates, after your death, Kleos, which, from the Greek perspective, is how your teammate translates into epic poetry that is given by these muses, the divine goddesses of poetry, to poets to be performed after your death. And so this is the abiding legacy you have through media,
0: ancient media. And importantly, the Marvel heroes are seeking a Kleos themselves. But again, consistently looking at this ideological hero, it's a much different kleos. It is a moral kleos of, I have been humble, I have shaken off my greed or my ambition, and I mean, we see that with a culmination of Iron Man's sacrifice, which is just something that, again, the Greeks didn't really think about. And a closing note here, as we wrap up this discussion, is when exactly do we see changes like this going from a status team a to a, a martial prowess or just a skill-based team? A, when exactly does that happen in a culture?
1: With the rise of the Greek city-state, and uh, you know, one of the the meta plot of the Iliad involves the death and destruction of everyone who is a hero, all the people who are the children of the gods. So the Greeks had a system of honor and respect that no longer applied to us regular human beings living in city-states. So Homer and the values within Homer become applied to service to the city, to exemplification of civic ideals, spreading the um, message or the values of the city abroad, And throughout antiquity, we come to uh, a philosophical revolution in the Hellenistic age, you know, at the age of after Alexander, where heroes and heroic behavior are associated with exemplifying a philosophical ideal. Um, And then later on, as I mentioned before, religious heroes, heroes who are um, heroic because they embody a religious ideal so well. So there's a transfer of these, what we might call very selfish ideas, kleos, time, focusing on how famous am I going to be to how can I make my city famous? How can I make my beliefs
0: famous? And I think an important parallel that we can find from the Greek world is looking at the modern United States, and kind of a similar cultural uprooting that happened, um, transitioning from a largely British status teammate to, after a couple centuries of attempting to do this, a more skills based teammate. How, at the start, I mean, the founding fathers um, went out of their way to make sure that titles of nobility were something that was outlawed. Now, of course, one can have the noble status without having the title, which you kind of see come about with plantation farmers, um, and so that's a problem. But the United States kind of chased that idea eventually of, again, uprooting that status team, a, where separating themselves from Britain, who had had hundreds and hundreds of years of building up family lineage and the importance there to the idea of pursuing something and making a name for yourself based off of your own skills. And there are arguments to be made about how successful it was historically, but it took the Greeks a couple centuries, and it took us a couple centuries. But it's an interesting parallel, how our heroes reflect the cultural changes that our, I guess, communities make, and how our heroes are representative of the morals that our culture has, both from ancient Greece to modern America. And I think that's where I want to end this. Thank you very much for joining me, Dr. Fincher. Oh, it was a pleasure. You've been enlightening. Thank you, everyone, for listening in. I hope you enjoyed this. And before I send you guys out, I thought I'd tease just a little bit about what next week's episode is going to be about. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the mid-2000s animated movie Rango, but I consider it to be a cinematic masterpiece. It is both a spaghetti western And animated in a Disney, anthropomorphized animal style. And the way that it melds the two together, I consider to be beautiful. And I will be looking at that movie, Rango, through the structuralist literary interpretation. That is, looking at how it deals with the spaghetti western tropes. The tropes of an animated animal cartoon. And then seeing how it uses both of those structures, those two genres. To create an interesting, unique experience, I will also be looking at how it uses the structures inside of its storytelling and how those two worlds overlap. Anyway, just wanted to keep you guys interested, and I will talk to you all next week. Take care, everybody.